Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by Gear Up Sports, one of the leaders in youth apparel sports, they, but they also support company attire with a distributed workforce and gear to stay connected. So to go to gearupwithus.com, as you know, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, this is exactly what we're wearing is the Gear Up stuff and all of our guests um, get gear from this. And so Steve, make sure you hang on afterwards as we'll be getting you some gear afterwards. Um, our shout out goes to Josh Detweiler. He's the CEO of AppJax and he is an awesome individual. He recommended us to Steve and several other people. Thank you, Josh, for that. And that brings us to our guest, Steve Walsh. Steve has invested in over 60 early stage companies, helping them raise millions of dollars in capital and countless connections via hands-on angels, key strategic relationships and partnerships. Steve believes his unique hands-on approach to being not only financially, but personally invested in a company's growth and success sets him apart in the ever-competitive startup ecosystem. Steve, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thanks, man. Great to be here today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, it's fun to have somebody who is from my old part of the world where I was from back in, back in the Boston area. So, um, now, Steve, I did not mention, are you a Sox fan? I, that is, I probably should have had asked that beforehand. Yeah, it's like required reading here. I'm a Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics, Bruins fan, lifelong. Uh, and the last 20 years of my life has probably been the greatest 20 years of sports era in Boston history. So I've been very fortunate. Absolutely. Go Sox. They beat, this is being recorded on April 11th for those who are wondering. And the Sox did beat the Yankees last night. So we could be in a little bit better mood because um, losing a three in a row would have been absolutely terrible. Um, but here we are. So we could, we can move forward with feeling more comfortable with that. Steve, tell us a little bit more about your business and what do you do? So at its core, I help early stage founders do two things. I help them raise capital for their business and I help them get partnerships and do some business development activities that can help them grow faster. Um, and I did this predominantly because when I started to meet early stage founders, they were really good at a couple things. They were great at building tech. They were great at vision, maybe recruiting a few friends. But the two areas I found them always struggling with was raising capital because it's really hard. And folks like myself don't stand in a street corner and say, I give money to founders. And scaling is hard, getting those early stage partnerships so you can scale your business faster. And I looked at it and just, and everybody in the ecosystem that I met wanted to be like two things for a founder. They wanted to be their lawyer or they wanted to be their CFO. And the founders were like, well, every time I talk to my lawyer for help, it cost me a thousand bucks an hour. And I don't need a CFO yet because I don't have enough money because I haven't raised my money or gotten customers. So I'm like, well, why don't I just go help them do the things that are hard, like raise money and get partnerships so they can grow faster. So I founded a company called Hands on Angel and just said, I'm going to go work with early stage founders to help them grow, help them raise money and help them change the world. And I've been very fortunate to do that now with over 60 companies, as you said. So what is the most common challenge that you see with startups? Um, there's not just one, but on a daily basis, it changes. Um, I think, you know, founders, especially nowadays, almost have to have blinders on and not listen to the noise telling them they can't do it. But at the same time, 
be open to coaching and surrounding themselves with people that can help them do things. I think sometimes early stage founders have this control issue that it's their baby and they're the only one that knows and then the only one that can do it. That's great when you have like one or two customers. As you start to scale, you've got to start to surround yourself with good people and you've got to start to open your mind to the fact that you can't know everything about everything. So surrounding yourself with people that have diversity of thought is really important at the earliest of stages. And I think the founders that do well and win realize that early on. So that's one of the big challenges is getting the founder and understand it is your baby and it is your vision. But if you don't realize how to give up some control and get some help here, like you can only go so far as one person. I, I think that is an absolute truism. What you just said there is, yeah. is the ability to let go, right? And bring in great help around you. Yeah. Trying not to be the smartest person in the room. You know, and and that is super difficult, I think, with a lot of founders, because as you said, it is their baby. They've created it, but you can't be an expert in everything. How do, how do you get that entrepreneur who's really stuck with that, right? He, he's probably in a sense of feeling like he's going to lose control, right? If he brings in somebody who's smarter than him in a specific area, how do you help guide them, mentor them? So they're like, oh, okay, I get this now. I get how I'm you know, benefiting from this? I, it's a good question. I, I think it, you know, for me, candor is probably one of my best and, uh, and at times worst qualities. My wife and I were talking about this last night. I've been told by many a founder and family member that I'm overly candid. I think in business, that's a good thing. And I think in this case, um, I, and I've had to do this with a few founders, where you have to just basically sit them down and say, look, at this rate, if you don't figure out how to give up control or at least open your mind to other possibilities, you're gonna go from being a half a million dollar business today to a million and a half dollar business in five years. And maybe you'll get to 2 million. And you know what we call that? We call that a lifestyle business. And that's totally fine. and could be a great living for you and your family. But you told me you wanna build a venture scale business. You wanna build a 50, 100 million, 200 million, $500 million company. You can't do that on your own. And you can't do that from the vision of one person. So you have to decide, do you want total control and build a nice little lifestyle business? Or do you want to build a holy crap company and build a venture scale business? Because that requires you to have diversity of thought. And that's really, that's probably the way I explain it to them in most cases. And then that resonates with them because they go, well, I want to be the latter. I want to be a big business. I go, well, you can't do it as one guy. I mean, if you ever, you know, Google is probably the biggest tech company in the world. They have thousands and thousands of employees. It's not just Sergey and his partner anymore. I, I love that suggestion of, of sometimes, once again, of understanding that they can do greater and make a greater difference. Now, let's talk about something else, which we get into, which what you do is you help provide seed capital or help partner with other people to help them get seed capital. That's another challenge, right? Is that they're also giving up part of their ownership. Now they do it because they want money, but they start recognizing they keep on giving out more, that that money is a liability in many cases, right? That person is expected to get paid back down the road. How do you help these entrepreneurs who are thinking about, hey, I want to really get into VC, right? I really want to move in this direction and helping them understand that that money is invested is, even though it's equity, somebody's expecting to get that money back. It's, it's debt on the business, right? They're taking on debt for some future promise of that, that debt being worth something or the equity being worth something. And you know, it's funny, I'm in the business of raising money for founders. And yet, I'm also the guy that tells founders right off the bat, raise as little as possible 
from as few people as possible so you can go as long as possible until you have to raise again. And it's sort of counterintuitive to what everyone hears, which is take as much money as you can, regardless of how much you have to give away. I'm the opposite. I, I like founders, because when founders come to me and say they want to raise money, my first question is, how many customers do you have? What's the revenue? What's the traction? And if the answer is negligible or nothing, what are you raising money for? Well, so I can go get customers. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. Investors are going to want to see customers traction and growth because they want to invest in putting gasoline in that so it can grow faster. They don't want to give you money so you can go build a product and find out if anybody will buy it. That's the biggest misconception founders have. So what I try to tell founders is take whatever money you can scrape together, credit cards, maybe a little friends and family money and build the crappiest version, rev one of your product. So you can put it in front of people and say, Carl, I know it doesn't look good, but I've built this. Is there any chance this is valuable to you? And more importantly, if it looked a little prettier, would you pay me for it? And if so, how much? And if Carl and 20 of Carl's friends say yes, now you have something you can go raise off of. Until you do that, you have no business raising money. So it's I actually coach people on delay raising until you know you have something that is worth raising. Because until you have product market fit or people willing to pay for your product, I don't know what the heck you're raising money for. Because someone, to your point, is going to expect that investment to return at some point. And if the answer is just going to go to zero, they're not going to give you the money. Yep. yep. So there is something you described that is important in, and this might be one-on-one for some of those listening, but for others, it might be a great clarification point because there's actually been a lot of changing in, in who's investing in companies, right? You have your original quote-unquote owner, yeah. and then there's that friends and family. Yep. And then those, when you get uncomfortable, which you go to somebody new, which is like an angel investor, right? Correct. And then there's this next stage of VC and then perhaps PE, can you help me out a little bit? And once again, for the audience perspective, but understand what is the difference between angel investing and venture capital money? So angel investors, and I'm one of them, are simply folks that either have a business background, maybe they're high net worth individuals, they're accredited investors in most cases, uh, as defined by the, by the government. And they will write checks into early stage companies, but they're typically an individual or a group of individuals, maybe a group of angels that have an angel group or an angel fund, or maybe even a family office. That's what you find right after the friends and family round, pre-venture capital. Venture capital, and in most cases, and this is the big one for me, they're using their own money. When you go to a venture capital firm, a venture capital firm has raised a fund from a number of people. And that fund now has a pool of capital that a GP manages that fund and takes a fee on managing that fund every single year and then invest in 10, 20, 50, 100 companies. But they're doing it with what I call um, OPM, other people's money. It's very different. Uh, and every bet they're making, their bet is that this one investment could return the entire fund because they know half of what they invest in is going to go to zero. So the ones that win really have to win because they're writing much bigger checks. Also, angels angels might write checks of 10,000 to, I actually know angels that write million dollar checks. Um, venture capital firms, probably anything under a million dollars, you're probably going to be doing an angel round. So they're going to write million dollar plus checks. So the size of the check is different. Um, I would also say the help you can get at those levels is very different. What I say is when I write a check into a company, 
I have a fiduciary responsibility to myself and to the founder to make them wildly successful. When you're taking money from a, a venture capital firm, I would argue their first order of business is to return the fund. If they can help you along the way, that's fantastic, but they're not going to be actively calling you on a regular basis saying, how can I help? Where do you need help? Let me make introductions. They're probably gonna say, how are your metrics? What are your KPIs? And are we gonna return this fund? And when are you raising again? Very different look and feel. Whereas someone like myself and why I call myself the hands-on angel is I like to be as active as possible so the founder can be as successful as possible because when they win, I win and we're completely aligned. There's that next group, which is private equity. Yeah. Describe what that is difference, right? The venture capital versus private equity. Private equity will be a couple, a couple things. Um, private equity might come in and take that business that um, maybe it's a five or 10 or $20 million business. And private equity says, maybe they're not going to go public. Maybe it's a great lifestyle business, but it spins off a lot of cash. Maybe we could buy a bunch of these, bring it under a private equity firm and just give dividends off the cash flow. You see that a lot with private equity. Private equity might be a bridge to say, this company is going to go public. They need an infusion of cash. Maybe we want to do some later stage investments as a pre-IPO. So those are the two instances I see private equity coming in. Later stage companies that are getting ready to go public and also companies that maybe aren't ever going to be public, but they're great businesses that have ridiculous margins and cash flow. And the private equity firm goes, if we bring that on our balance sheet, we'll have this cash machine that just spins off cash every year. When do you think it's okay for an owner to give up that 51% to the point, right, where all of a sudden they are no longer by definition the controlling shareholder? Yeah. When is, yeah, when is that time? Uh, I mean, because... in a perfect world, it's when you're public, mm -hmm. but that doesn't always happen that way. Uh, I've seen founders like at the early stages giving up 50, 60% of their company. Um, you know, what I ask is why in a lot of cases, like, well, I need to bring in this expert and this expert. And I look at it and go, if you get to the point where you have to bring in so many experts that you've given up 60% of your company, are you the right person to be running it? Like if you need that many experts around you, are you really the person that can see this to fruition? Um, the other reason I see it is some founders, and I'm not a fan of this, but some founders, they're raising so many rounds and so much money that every round is, is additional dilution. And their, their point to me, and I had this conversation with one founder who had given up over 50% of his company, but he'd raised almost $40 million. And I'm like, why would you do that? He's like, well, in the end, I could own 10% of a billion dollar company, or I can own 30% of a hundred million dollar company. I'd rather 10 own 10% of a billion dollar company. It's all in how you want to slice it. Every founder is different. I'm not a fan though of, you know, raise as much capital as you can and who cares about dilution. I'd rather raise the right amount of capital from the right investors and own as much of my company as I can. So if I have an exit, I can maximize it. So what's the risk you see when people are raising a lot of money, they go underneath that 51% hmm. or they have a lot of uh, preferred debt, right? That's accruing interest. And all of a sudden there's basically loans are about effectively to get called. What happens often at that point for that management team or that CEO at that point? A couple things. Uh, if the company's not performing and the board has control, they could get rid of them. So he could lose his own company. Um, I've seen this a lot where founders raise rounds that are too big, too fast, too early. 
and they have to do a down round. So they raised their last round at 50 million and now this round is at 30 million. So they're actually raising a down round, which is crushing and sends a really bad signal to the rest of the market. Both of those things are on the table. So, be, you know, and I think a lot of times uh, you said in the beginning, be careful what you ask for. When you take other people's money, it is your company. You are the CEO, but you now almost have a parent. Like you have someone you have to report to. You have a new boss, by the way, and it's either a board or an investor or all your investors that, and this is something I don't see all founders doing, you should be reporting to, maybe not monthly, but at least quarterly, four times a year, you should be putting out, I got one of them this morning from one of my portfolio companies. Do you update your investors on what's going on with the company, the structure of the company, the health of the company, growth, where you need their help? I don't see enough founders doing that. And, and when they finally do, it's too late because the stuff's really hit the fan. Mm. Yeah. The, and I appreciate you bringing this up because I, I there's such an exciting part of for an owner of raising money. But I also, when I see a headline of somebody's raised 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 million, I'm like, that's a lot of debt you just put on. That's a lot of debt. You know, and they always go, what's equity? It's like, no, it's not. That person's expecting that money back and they're expecting a return. You haven't won. All you've done is gotten liquidity to help ideally pay that back in the future, right? And, and so these are these things that I, I just like have your eyes, you know, uh, you know, really open to all the different parts, issues, risk that are going on with it. Um, and, and, and ideally it's a celebration because you are going to be able to hit your goals or where you want to get to, but you got to execute. I mean, it's like, if you thought you were working harder before, you're going to really have to work harder in the future, right? If you have this additional debt that's brought onto it. Um, anyways, I just appreciate you giving you know, some I, of these comparisons. Go ahead. Yeah. I, um, I always say to the founder, hey, you know that deck you put together that had this really cool slide and it went up and to the right? They go, yeah. <laughs> I go, the investor's assuming you're going to do that. And when you don't, they're going to have a problem with that. So whatever you put in the deck, you may think it's a projection. I can assure you the investor is not looking at it that way. They're expecting you to exceed that projection. And they don't want to hear why you didn't. Because they're eventually going to expect to return the capital. I never understand when um, management has a choice to under-promise and over-deliver, and they seem to do the opposite when it comes to pitch decks. Right. You know, and and it's like everything's a hockey stick. It's like all oh, Boston Bruin fans now. You know, it's like uh, every everything everything is going to go and shoot, hit the sky. And it's like, wait a second, that is not typical unless you have the type of business that can do that. I mean, there's certain groups, but usually it requires, once again, getting your MPV, your your product. You know, your, um, your MVP, sorry, your product to that minimum stage where you can actually, you've proven the scale of it. Not only does it work, but you have a scalable business and all, not all businesses can 3X, 5X, 10X in size, depending on what's driving it. Um, so going for, let's, let's talk about your side behind this and, and what do you enjoy most about this? It's easy. Um, I get to live vicariously through the founders I work with. Um, I was in Miami last week. I went to the Bitcoin conference and I had probably half a dozen of my founders that I've invested in and work with there. We did a couple parties and just to see the success they're having and the millions of dollars we raised and the companies they are building. And I went home and I'm like, holy crap, I get to be part of this. And um, that's why I do this. Um, I get to live through them and help them grow. 
I get to be the guy that sort of stands in the corner and just throws out stupid ideas and we see which ones stick. And then when they latch onto one, we go execute on it. Um, I think it's the best. And I, I get to work with people that are incredibly and much smarter than I am, which is great. And I get to see them win. And, and I've been fortunate to be part of a couple of exits, which is awesome. And when you have a founder that you make an investment in early on when there's two or three of them and no customers and no very little revenue, and then they get an exit and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how big or how small for them to be able to see that company through the life cycle. And you had some small part of that. That's absolutely winning. And you feel like you've won. Like you, you feel like it's almost like it's your company getting sold. And it is because I own a piece of it and it's a small piece, but that's the best. When you see your founders having that success and you know, you had some small thing to do with that. I don't think there's anything better. And last week was a great testament to that when we were at an event and I had a couple of my founders and a bunch of investors that I introduced to them that are just excited about the company and where it's going. I don't know if there's ever a better moment when you see that. That's awesome. So we, we talked prior to the show of you talk to a lot of people who have average jobs, if you may, right. You know, that they're they're but they're really talented in what they do. Sure. And they're, and, and you're telling them, Hey, you can be like me, so to speak. Now, yeah. not the exact same person, obviously, because they have their own skill sets, their own gifts. Right. How, how do you get people to be willing to take that leap, right? To do something like you, like myself, where we've gone off and left, quote unquote, the corporate world, right? And we've, we've gone into business for ourselves. Help. What are the things they have to think about to be successful and why can they be successful? Well, what I, I, try to get, I try to get to the core of it, which is they're afraid right? We're all afraid. I was afraid. So were you. And the hardest thing they'll ever do is starting. That's the hardest thing they'll ever do. If you can get by that point of the fear of starting, everything else is actually pretty easy. Yeah. It just, it just is. That's the hardest thing. And then when I ask them this question, pretty talented at what you do. Yeah. If that job ended tomorrow, do you think you could get another crappy job that you don't like that pays you as much as the one you do? Oh, absolutely. Do you have enough friends that you're confident that if you lost your job tomorrow with five phone calls, you could get another one of these jobs looks just like it? Yeah. So the worst thing that happens is you leave this crappy job you hate and complain about constantly. You go start a business and six months or a year from now, you realize it's not for you. And you go back and get one of these crappy jobs that you know you can get because you have so many friends in this industry. Yeah. I go, so what are we talking about right now? And why are we spending time? Like, that's the risk that you're not willing to take. And, and I get not everybody's ever goes, well, what about, you know, financially? Well, I would hope, and most of my friends look like me, you know, they're not 20 years old. I would hope that if you're still living paycheck to paycheck at 50 years old, something's wrong. Like, I would hope you have something to be able to say that if you didn't have guaranteed income for the next three to six months, you wouldn't, the world would not crumble. So, and, and most of us, when we start our businesses, you have credit cards, take a HELOC on your house I and mean, whatever it is, go bet on yourself. I just, I think that's the biggest thing for me, Carl, is that people aren't willing to bet on themselves. They want someone else to do it for them. I'm like, I don't know. I, I have more confidence in my ability to execute than people around me. So I'm willing to make that bet. And, and if you can get off that first step, which is the hardest, I agree with you. But I think once you get beyond that, everything else is just, it's just easier, just is. And then you'd look back and go, what the hell was I so afraid of? If the worst thing that happens is you fail, 
I failed three times this morning before I got out of the gym. Like, like failing is part of the process. You iterate, you learn, and then you, then you're better. I just think this is part of the process, the learning process. And for me, probably like you, there isn't enough money in the world to get me to go back to work for someone else. It just isn't. I have a freedom and a, a uh, vigor for what I do and a love for what I do now and the people I do it with that I don't ever have to worry about showing up at a certain time in a certain place, dressed a certain way, acting a certain way and letting someone else tell me I'm valued. I just, I get to determine that now all for myself. I wouldn't want it any other way. And I think more people could do what you and I do. They just have to have that confidence to take that first step. And, and what, what I think to add to that is, is their special sauce is their special sauce that's unique that nobody else has. And, and that's what makes them great. What makes people great makes you great who are listening and people are listening. It's not trying to be somebody else. Well said. Yeah. And, and I think that's the hardest thing, right? Of like having belief in yourself. And I don't know, see if you did, I, I hired coaches along the way myself because I was like, I knew I could, but it's like, I still needed somebody to tell me I could, because honestly, people in my house, my family was scared for me to do it. Sure. You know, I have a matter of fact, one of the biggest arguments I had was open up this next business, <laughs> you know, they're like not again, you know, and, and you have to be willing to take that risk. And if you know, it's the right thing for you to do. And once again, worst case scenario, Hey, it doesn't work. You go get a normal job again, you know? And, and that's, that's the part that I think is, um, you could always go back, you know, there, it, there's a lowest unemployment rate again, you know, we've gone all through the whole COVID cycle. We're back down to 3% again, you know, there are plenty of jobs for qualified people, um, that want to get stuff done. And, and it's funny. Uh, I mean, when I, when I left, uh, I called one of my closest friends who worked with me for years, who's an entrepreneur. And I call my brother who's been an entrepreneur for 30 years. And, you know, when you leave, most people have this reaction. What happened? Are you okay? These two guys, my brother, my friend, Mo, they were both like, oh, thank God. I'm so glad you did that. This, I've been waiting for you to do this all these years. What took you so long? It was, and, um, and that made me know that it was the right thing to do. And they have been uh, huge supporters of me and helped me just build this business from scratch. And uh, you, sometimes everybody needs that, right? Is someone, a little birdie on their shoulder going, you can do this. Like you, my brother's like, I've been doing it for 30 years. Like, you know, you could absolutely do this and let me help you. And um, you're going to stumble along the way, but that's fine. But it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you measure success from a business perspective? Um, like all the pitch decks I look at, I track revenue and clients and, you know, we like things that go up and to the right, whether that's revenue or your bank account, but more importantly, I track success for me on, um, how are my founders doing? Am I helping them grow their business? Is their business healthier today than it was a year ago when I was working with them? Are they, have they grown for revenue and units? So I track what I would track in a traditional business for my founders. And I look at that and go, did I help them grow customers, grow revenue or grow relationships this year? And if yes, I'm doing my job. If not, I need to do it better. So that's where, I, when I look for success, it's not always monetary. It's just, and, and honestly, I ask them, I mean, I ask for feet, like, how are we doing? How can I do it better? When I talk to most of my founders, usually the first, one of the first questions out of my mouth is where are you struggling right now? Like, I know all the crap you sent me in the update about where you're winning. Where's a pain point for you right now? And how can I, or my network help? I think when you start doing that, good things just happen. So let's, let's 
move to the personal side a bit. We've obviously been blending it too, because I, you know, the reality is right. When you're in business for yourself, you're in the business for yourself, right? It, it is a blended part. You know, it, it's, there isn't compartmentalism. Um, you, you are one in the same, if you may, but I'm curious now from, from what do you do? You, is there interesting? You mentioned you were at the gym earlier. What are the things that you're doing from an activity standpoint to stay on the top of your game? So you feel like you could provide the fullest to your clients. So about probably about six, seven years ago, um, I lost like 52 pounds and I was overweight and wasn't taking care of myself the way I should. And what I realized was, and I was working a lot, like we all do, but what I realized pretty, and, and I think timing of me starting my own business helped with this. What I realized first and foremost is that I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father before I'm anything. And, um, my dad died when he was 59 years old. He was really mm-hmm. sick, um, had lung disease and heart disease. And so, I, so I've never smoked, so that's a good thing. But I, I finally looked at it and said, if I'm not in the best, not just best shape, but if I'm not the healthiest person I can be, I can't be the best husband, father, and business person. So I think I made a conscious decision for me to try to start every day from a, a, a a point of gratitude, first of all, being grateful for having that day and for making an investment in myself in the morning. And for me, when I started my own company, it was eight to 10 every day. I just block out and eight to 10 every day is my time for the gym, for yoga, for meditation to level set. Because I feel like if I do that every day, anything that happens after it, I can handle because I'm starting each day with the right physical and mental mindset. And I've been doing that now for almost the last six years. Uh, and, and, it's not about, I need to maintain a way to maintain this. For me, it was maintaining a healthy mind, body, and spirit. And when I started starting my day like that, I just thought everything else became easier. So for me, that's where routine, um, at least six days a week, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. That's where it starts. And, uh, and then after that, it's, um, I block out time in my schedule for clients and I have a routine of when the client calls are going to be. And it's, it's almost like, it, it is very much corporate America-like, but I'm only managing me. I have like a staff of one to manage, which is the best. And it's mm-hmm. and in my time, and then I only, this is going to sound stupid, but I have a firm, uh, like no asshole policy. I just do. And I spent so many years with other people, not just telling me what to do, having to work with people that I didn't think were the right type of people for me to work with. Now, I, I don't just work with people I like. I work with people I love. Mm. And when you get to do that, everything else just happens. It's great. And so I get to pick and choose who I work with, which is very freeing. I'm sure you probably have it in your own business. Yeah. yeah. So the, I, I love, once again, all the things you described, right? Of, of, you know, you do have to take care of yourself. I think that's yeah. one of the things we miss all the time. Um, and then and then you're doing it for, right? Your, your four is for your family. You know, you know it, that, that's 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 what it's all about at the end of the day for, for so many of us, um, despite how many zeros we have in our bank account, right? You, you lose that stuff. A lot of that stuff doesn't seem as important. So then how would you then take that next step? How do you measure success? How do you know things are rolling properly in your personal life? Uh, for me, it's balance. And um, my wife and I have talked a lot about this is we at times get out of balance and one of the goals I set for myself for this year is to make sure that while my business is thriving, that I'm giving equal time to the things that um, are the reason why I'm building a business, which is my wife, my, my two boys, my mom, my brother, my family, 
And I think it, and even my friends, and I think what, what tends to happen for me at least is sometimes that pendulum gets swung. I'm either spending too much time on business or too much time over here, or, or if I've got too much focus on my family, my friend relationships aren't really where they should be. And I think for me, uh, just trying to find a balance between all of it. Um, Josh, who was on your podcast, I listened to that one. And by the way, one of the best humans mm -hmm. in the world and one of my, uh, the, just someone that just, I was so lucky to have him come into my life is Josh Detweiler. He talked about the weekends and his employees. And if employees are calling or emailing him on the weekend, he actually sits them down. He's like, what are you doing that can't wait till Monday? Like, what is, what, what, this is not that important. And he's the owner of the company. He's telling, this is not that important. And I think Josh is someone in my life that I've run into that understands balance and what's important. And I think my goal is to make sure that I'm reminded of that so that I, I have balance in everything I do, not just one thing. Very well said. And I agree. Josh is a, he called me out. I loved it. And the, he was like, what are you talking about, Carl? Why would you be doing that? And you know, in terms of, you know, you've got basically saying you've got a problem if you can't put this balance, right? You're, or you're hiding from somebody else. If you're working 80 hours a week, you're hiding from something else. That Correct. was a really interesting insight, right? Absolutely. You know? And, and so that was, anyways, I just love that about that. So something else you mentioned in our prep call behind this, which I appreciated, you said one of your measures of success is you getting invited to a wedding, right? From, from one of the, the people yeah. that you invested in. I mean, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, that, cause that to me is pretty great at reward, right? That not only yeah. are you a business partner, but you become, you've had friendship now with, with those that you've literally invested not only money with, but your time. So one of my um, favorite portfolio companies, they were in Miami last week uh, with me, a company called Roundly X and, uh, and the CEO, uh, Drew Elliott and his partner, Will. I've known these guys for a couple of years now. And, you know, one of the pitches, I met them coming out of an accelerator and Drew was pitching me. And these guys aren't, you know, they're not 20 years old, they're mid thirties, married kids, Drew's getting married. And uh, I'm like, hey, you guys have had the company like two, three years. How'd you fund the company for the first couple of years? Drew's like, oh, I, uh, I sold my house uh, and bought a bunch of Bitcoin to fund the company. I'm like, sold your house? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm in. He's like, I haven't finished my presentation. I'm like, I don't care what the valuation is. I don't care. I'm like, I'm in. Because to me, that's, that's someone that has no plan B. They're betting on themselves that this has to be successful because I just sold my house for it. Um, and to know a little bit more about Drew, he served in the military, did a tour of Afghanistan. So like, he's just a person of character. And I'm like, I'm in. And over the last couple of years, we've been building his business. They now have like 25,000 users. They're growing like 30, 40% a month. We've raised, we just raised another $2 million seed round. So we've raised like $3 million and the company's just humming. And um, he called me like six months ago and he's like, hey, uh, Alice and I are planning the wedding. Um, any chance you and Kim would be able to come? I go, sure. When, where? He's like, oh, it's, it's in, it's in Slovenia. And I'm like, like Europe, Italy, Slovenia, like, yeah. I'm like, uh, okay. Why me? He's like, look, you, you're part of our company. You're part of our investment team. More importantly, you're part of our family. And we couldn't have done this without you. And uh, that's when, you know, you're doing the right things by a company. Um, he's just a special person to begin with. They're a special company, but it's just, it's validation that, uh, we're winning. We're both winning. He's getting something out of relationship from me and I'm absolutely getting something back from them. 
Um, and it's not about money. It's just, and I said it last week when I saw those guys and we were talking to a few investors and they're like, Steve, why do you like working with these guys? I said, there is nothing I wouldn't do for them. Nothing. Raise capital, get customers, anything I can do to make them successful. Uh, I literally will go to the end of the earth for these guys. And that's just a, probably the, one of the nicest things a founder's ever done for me. And, and I was humbled. Um, and we're going to have a great time. We'll go to Italy in, in June. So That's fantastic. Steve, I really appreciate it. And for those who want to um, learn more about you, we're gonna, I'm going to ask a, a couple more questions here. But how can they get connected? Because I think for those who are thinking about going down this path, right, of, of starting the angel investing, how, how can they get connected with you? So my website's handsonangel.com. It's pretty simple. Um, you can leave me a note there, chat there. It lists all my companies I've worked with, everyone I've invested in, how I work, sort of like a podcast I've been on like this one, which I'd love to add. Um, just gives you a good indication. If someone says, Steve, who are you? What do you do? I, I usually send them there. I'm also on LinkedIn a lot. Those are probably the two best ways to connect with me. Cool. All right. So I like to ask all my guests, what is a book that you recommend for our audience? So it's, it's near and dear to my heart because um, when I got into angel investing four or five years ago, I didn't know where this was going to lead and I didn't want to lose my shirt and I wanted to work with good companies. And I read a book by a guy named Jason Calacanis called Angel. And it was about his journey and how he built a hundred, he turned a hundred thousand dollars into a hundred million dollars angel investing. And a lot of what resonated with me, not just that he'd been successful, but he was a blue collar kid. So was I. He was from the East Coast. He was from New York. I was from Boston. He grew up in a very middle-class household. Father owned a bar, lost the bar. Um, and Jason was not, he didn't grow up in San Francisco and really was a reporter and nudged his way into this venture capital world and became a scout for Sequoia Ventures and learned from the inside how venture worked and decided he was going to start making bets on early stage founders. And now fast forward 10, 12 years, uh, he was like the third or fourth check into Uber. He invested early into Calm. He's had like eight or nine unicorns that are worth over a billion dollars. And now I reached out to him after reading the book and I've since read the book five times and I've listened to it on audio. Wow. And um, he's been great. And, and Jason um, invited me into a syndicate. We've done some deals together. I've done like 22 deals with Jason over the years now. And um, he's just a super cool guy. I think the book for anyone that has ever said, hey, what is this angel investing? What does it look like? This is really my playbook. I've really built my entire business around the themes of the book, which is be as helpful as possible. Don't expect a lot. Go out of your way to help early stage founders write small checks in a diverse portfolio and amazing things can happen. And I just think there's a lot of life lessons there outside of the investing piece. And it's always really resonated with me, which is why when someone's like, hey, and I'm not a big book person, but I've read this book literally numerous times because it's, it's changed the way I look at the investment community. Steve, I am... This has been awesome. Incredible recording. Uh, I think the insights that you have will be for those who are listening, those who are, are entrepreneurs or thinking about being entrepreneurs. Um, I think this is a great way of, of doing things and doing it the right way. I think that's one of the things that, that I appreciate what you do, you know? And so um, I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Carl, thanks again for having me. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And to everyone else who's listening, to all our guests, well, I just want to thank you for listening and wishing you the very best at measuring success and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best.
Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.